0: snorkeling and smorgasbords, deck chairs and dance floors, swimming pools and shopping sprees. A cruise is supposed to be great fun. Did you know that the year before the pandemic, 2019, 30 million people, a record number, took their vacation on a cruise ship? And now that restrictions are being lifted, people are back at it. There is a pent-up demand for cruises. Apparently, the old cliche, cruises are for the overfed and almost dead, is no longer the case. Lots of vacationers are cruising these days, and one of the most popular destinations has always been the Mediterranean. A Mediterranean cruise sounds particularly glamorous, doesn't it? And yet, after today's study, you might have a different opinion. For in Acts chapter 27, Paul sets sail on a Mediterranean cruise, but these passengers are singing the blues. At the outset of his ministry, God told Paul that he would preach to Gentiles and to kings. And the emperor Nero was both. It was inevitable that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, would witness to Nero, the ruler of the Gentiles. But how do you arrange a meeting between an obscure rabbi like Paul and the head of the empire? Paul was unable to even afford passage to Rome. But again, God's providence worked to accomplish God's purposes. For when the apostle Paul got tired of being a political football, he appealed his case to the Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had that right. And as the Roman governor, Festus had to foot the bill. And in Acts chapter 27, Paul embarks on an all-expenses-paid Mediterranean cruise, courtesy of the Caesar Nero's own treasury. Last week, we covered the first eight verses of chapter 27. Paul boarded his ship with a few friends, along with a Roman centurion escort. He and Julius made it as far as Myra on the Turkish coast before they caught a long hauler sailing for Italy. The cargo ship made it to the island of Crete and they docked in the port of Fairhaven's on the southern coast. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in verse 9 of Acts chapter 27. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Now after mid-September, Mediterranean sailing was very dangerous. After mid-November, it was impossible. The fast to which Luke refers was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. That means it's mid to late October. And Paul advises them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now, Paul wasn't a sailor by trade, but he was a seasoned traveler. This wasn't his first cruise. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he lists his trials, he writes, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I had been in the deep. I mean, this guy had experiences of nautical nightmares. And Paul has no desire to spend another night as shark bait in the ocean. Sergeant Julius should have listened to Paul. But verse 11 tells us, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Once again, siding with the experts gets somebody into trouble. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix. Phoenix a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. And it just wasn't the harbor. You see, the sailors didn't want to be stuck in Fairhaven's for the whole winter. Fairhaven's was a tiny little village with nothing to do. Whereas in Phoenix, you could take in a son's game. There was some nightlife, perhaps bars, some revelry, some women in Phoenix. Lust tainted their logic. They weren't thinking rationally. The crew members took a vote, and the majority said, sell for Phoenix. Always be leery of the majority. You know, God's will often, if not always, conflicts with the majority opinion. At times, following God requires us to go against the grain. Verse 13 tells us, Now when the south wind blew softly, Supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Notice that phrase, it just kind of lulls you to sleep. The south wind blew softly. But understand, the easy path isn't always God's path. The soft winds aren't always God's winds. You know, we often think just because a door swings open... Or our circumstances become compliant. God must be in it. Not necessarily. Proverbs 14 verse 12 tells us, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The soft winds aren't always God's path. Here we learn that there are four ways that we can miss out on God's will. Here they are. First, get impatient. Hey, we got to get to Phoenix. Let's push it. Second, take a vote. Side with the majority instead of seek God's will. Third, test the win. Let your circumstances decide your your decisions rather than relying on principles to dictate your choices. Opt for the path of least resistance. That'll, That'll circumvent God's will. And then fourth, let your lust take over. The sailors wanted to make Phoenix for all the wrong reasons. This is what causes us to miss out on God's will when we're impatient or when we side with the majority or when we allow our circumstances to determine our decisions or when we let our lusts take over. That's why to stay in the center of God's will, we have to be patient and willing to wait. We have to rely on God's wisdom, even if it's unpopular with our friends. We have to base our decisions on conviction, not just what's convenient. And we need to walk in the Spirit and seek our satisfaction from God. Now notice verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. We get our English word typhoon from the Greek word translated tempestuous. The sailors named their winds after the direction of their origin. And Euroclidon means the northeasterner. This storm arose suddenly. So when this ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now, Phoenix was a mere 45 miles up the coast of Crete, but the wind shifted. Soft southern winds turned into a violent northeasterner. Huge swells were suddenly slamming into the wooden hull. If they fought the storm and held their course, the boat would break apart Their only option was to sail with the wind. Stop resisting and try to ride out the storm. Verse 16, And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Up to this point, they had been dragging a little lifeboat behind them. They didn't want to lose the dinghy, so they tied it to the main ship. Now, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. As the waves were slapping against the hull, they could hear the timbers creaking and cracking. So as they were securing the dinghy, they took ropes and they ran them under the boat (coughs) in hopes of stabilizing its frame and keeping it from breaking apart. And fearing lest they should run aground on the surtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven." In other words, the more they fought these northeastern winds, the further south they were pushed. The sailors feared the Surtis Sands. These were quicksands off the coast of North Africa. The area was known as the ship's graveyard. In riding out the storm, the seamen lowered the ship's sails and they drifted. They didn't want to become vulnerable to those sands. Verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. The more weight the ship carried, the more momentum in the wrong direction it created. And so they started ditching cargo to lighten the load, try to stop their drift. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. It's getting bad to worse here, isn't it? This was before the age of electronic navigation, or even a compass for that matter. Ancient mariners plotted their course by the stars. And yet it had been weeks since they'd seen a break in the clouds. They had no clue as to where they were, how of course they had drifted. These salty seamen were now terrified and hopeless. The experts had given up. In fact, everybody had given up except the Apostle Paul. Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Paul jumps out on deck and he shouts what everybody loves to hear. "Hey!" I told you so. (laughs) I told you so. And I'm sure they probably would have thrown him overboard if it wasn't for what he said next. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And don't you love this terminology? The God to whom I belong. Hey, when you're confident of who you belong to, of where you belong, you can't be bullied. You can't become someone else's pawn when you know to whom you belong. The angel told Paul, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you evidently Paul had been praying and asked God to save the passengers and crew God had agreed Paul concludes therefore take heart men for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me however we must run aground on a certain island you know in a crisis real leadership always steps up it always rises to the surface Everyone else had given up, but Paul steps up. He issues the challenge. Take heart, for I believe God. Verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. Notice they'd been lost at sea for two weeks. A long time. Today, the Adriatic Sea speaks of the ocean between Italy and Eastern Europe. But in Paul's day, it referred to much more and included the entire eastern part of the Mediterranean. And about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Could it be they heard the ocean breakers slapping against the shoreline? They, they knew they were getting close to shore. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. These soundings were lead anchors that the sailors would drop and they would time to see how long it took for them to hit the bottom. They knew the water was shallowing out. The fathom fathom equals six feet. Here they go from 120 feet of ocean to 90 feet of ocean, just in short order. They're moving toward the rocky shore at a pretty fast clip. Verse 29, Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, this was terrifying. Remember, it was pitch black, middle of the night. No one can see. I mean, this would be like driving with no headlights. You know you're going to crash, but you don't know when. So in desperation, the sailors drop four anchors off the stern and they pray for the sunrise. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Remember, that's what he told them earlier. The ship would be lost, but not the men. You had to stay in the ship to be saved. You had to stay put to be saved. Only those who stayed on board survived. Jump in, jump ship, bail out. Try to save yourself and you would end up drowning. You know, this is like our salvation. Only those who remain in Christ, who stay on board and keep believing, those are the ones who are saved. Only the people who keep trusting in Jesus end up saved fail to abide jump ship bail out and you end up drowning within the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off and as the day was about to dawn paul implored them all to take food saying today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing therefore i urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I mean, this crew's about to burn some serious calories out fighting the surf. They had received God's promises. Now they need some protein. Eat up, he says. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they themselves were all encouraged, and they also took food themselves. Notice, practically speaking, the ship had a new captain. Prisoner Paul has become Captain Paul, hasn't he? And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship, Luke writes. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. They were in for a rough landing, so they threw the cargo overboard. And when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. The plan was to gain ahead of steam and run the ship right up onto the beach. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes. In other words, they had no way to steer it. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, In other words, a sandbar, they ran the ship aground and the prow, which was the point at the front of the ship, at the bow of the ship, it stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. The bow stuck into the sand while the surf started eating away and demolishing and breaking apart of the timbers of the ship and demolished the ship from the back to the front. In verse 42, And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You see, in Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the soldier responsible for him, who was guarding him, was then ordered to complete the prisoner's sentence. Thus, these soldiers were going to kill the prisoners in order to save their own skin. But the centurion, you remember Julius, Paul's friend? Wanting to save Paul kept them from their purpose. Julius comes to the rescue, talks them out of it. And he commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. And just as God had promised Paul, everyone who stayed with the ship made it safely to shore. And ironically, it was the ship's broken boards and timbers that acted as life rafts to enable the crew to make it to the shore. That's why it was so important to stay with the ship. And this is why it's always crucial to stay with the boat. Don't jump ship. Don't give up on God or bail out on God's will. Stay exactly where God has called you. Understand, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. It always is. Even if it's a turbulent situation. Even if a relationship is breaking apart. Even if your life seems to be drowning. Stay in the will of God. Stay in the boat. And it's the lessons you learn there. Even the pain you endure there. That becomes the very thing that saves you from future trouble. It's the lessons learned and the humility gained from our shattered dreams that save us to start over. But chapter 28. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. The island of Malta is 58 miles south of Sicily. Recall their origin, their Target destination was the Cretan port of Phoenix, 45 miles west of Fair Havens. This was a trip that should have taken less than a day. Instead, they were at sea for 14 days for two weeks, and they traveled 645 miles. Talk about a detour. And you see, this is what happens when we follow the wrong voices, when we get impression, and we leave the will of God. See, Satan's plan for us is always presented as a shortcut, but it ends up the long, hard, costly voyage. Once there was a professional race car driver who was hired to drive a 15-block section of the city of Colorado Springs. Well, the driver was careful to observe all the speed limits and all the traffic laws. His time was 9 minutes 35.1 seconds. Well, after the driver had finished, he was allowed to drive the same 15-block course again, but this time as fast and as reckless as possible. With police permission, he drove at illegal speeds, and he broke 52 traffic violations. And yet the results were surprising. The professional race car driver could only shave 3.9 seconds off his previous time. See, we assume the laws and the rules are in place to slow us down. But in reality, we lose very little doing the right thing. You lose very little time doing the right thing. Even the few seconds you might lose are worth it when you consider the safety and the protection of obedience. If you think God's rules are getting in your way, or they're slowing you down, or you think God is cramping your style, you've been deceived. In the long run, God's way makes life easier, not harder. Just ask the crew members on Paul's ship. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now, in mid October, nighttime temps on Malta are in the low 50s. And that doesn't include the ocean breeze. I mean, it could get real chilly. It was an act of hospitality that the islanders on Malta welcomed these water-soaked survivors with a roaring fire. But notice who is gathering firewood, verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, the apostle Paul, remember, Paul was always a servant first. Talk about a humble guy. He's a servant. The author Of 14 of the 27 New Testament books was not above collecting sticks. Who do you think you are? Paul was a humble guy. He was always a servant first. And when he had laid them on the fire, that is the sticks, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When a poisonous viper hibernates, the snake's body stiffens. So Paul picked up the snake inadvertently in a pile of sticks. And when the snake got close to the fire, it woke up. And all of a sudden, the viper took a bite out of Paul. The venom was obviously deadly. Thus, the locals expected Paul to kill over. We're told in verse 4. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. The Maltese worshipped a Greek goddess named Justice. Here they assume that she's finally caught up to Paul and rewarded him for the fate he had escaped at sea, but deserved all along. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I love that. Paul, notice what Paul does to the poisonous viper. He just shakes it off. He shakes it off into the fire. If this had happened to one of us, a tourniquet would have been applied. We'd have been rushed to the hospital. I mean, you would have expected Julius to act like John Wayne and pull out his knife and cut across the bite marks and suck out the venom, show some true grit. But Paul, he just shakes off the snake into the fire and he carries on. In other words, rather than focus on his own wound, he just shakes off the pain that it caused and he carries on serving the Lord and the brothers there. And this is a huge lesson for anyone who serves the Lord. You're giving to others in practical ways. When out of nowhere, that old serpent, Satan, slithers along and sinks his poisonous fangs into your arm, into your hand. See, often our attempts to do good can come back to bite us, can't they? It's ironic that we can get hurt even in the midst of serving the Lord. It's a servant's occupational hazard. And understand why Satan attacks those who serve. If he can get us to focus on ourselves, our hurt, our wound, he can distract our service. This is why the best way to handle a hurt is just to shake it off. See, if you take the time to nurse it or fixate on it, you play right into Satan's hands. Just shake it off and keep serving. God protected Paul and God will protect you. The bite won't be near as bad as you think. God will neutralize the poison if you refuse to pamper the pain. Just keep on serving him, and God will take care of the healing. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. See, here was a legitimate fulfillment of Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Remember what Jesus had predicted? He had said, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And notice that line, they will take up certain serpents And it will by no means hurt them. You know, we've all heard about snake handlers in Appalachia who literally pick up the poisonous snakes to test the veracity of this verse. But rather than test God's faithfulness or even their own faith, they're actually testing God's patience. For such acts take this verse out of context. I don't believe that God ever intended for believers to go out looking for cotton mouths and copperheads. See, God knew that as the church marched out into the remotest parts of the world to fulfill the Great Commission, that snakes and other dangers would be lurking. Here God is promising missionaries supernatural protection. And we see God protect Paul accordingly. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Delaware Indians who made contact with him long before he made contact with them. In fact, one day, a group of warriors slipped up quietly to Brainerd's tent. Armed with knives and tomahawks, their mission was to kill the stranger. But when they peered into the tent, they were stunned by what they saw. For David Brainerd was on his knees in prayer, praying for those Indians. And just behind him was a poisonous rattlesnake coiled and ready to strike. The missionary was oblivious to the snake, and as he continued praying, the snake lowered its head and slithered off. Well, the Indians were so amazed, they returned to camp with news of the miracle that they had witnessed. When Brainerd and the Indians finally made contact, he received a warm welcome. He never understood why he was so well-received until years later when he was told about the warriors and what they had seen in his tent. It had convinced them in advance that he was God's messenger. God promises to protect his missionaries. Well, here are the men from Malta. They witness Paul's encounter with the viper. They even go further with their conclusions. They assume that Paul must be divine. He must be a God. And just as he did earlier in Lystra, Paul quickly set the record straight, no doubt. He was nothing divine. He used the occasion to witness of the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, we're told, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. Now, remember, there were 276 passengers and crew on the ship, and not a single person had lost their life. Here, Publius feeds and entertains the survivors for three full days. Must have been a very wealthy man. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. On the surface, this whole ordeal at sea had been a detour, but actually God turned it into a vital stop in Paul's itinerary. The gospel came to Malta as the result of a storm and a shipwreck. And whenever we get knocked off course, remember, it could be God rerouting us for his glory, for his purposes. Well, verse 11 tells us, after about three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brother's which had wintered at the island. Ancient ships were often identified by carvings in the bow of the ship. In Greek mythology, the twin brothers were the two sons of Jupiter, Castor and Pollux. They protected distressed sailors. But Paul and his crew knew better. They had to learn firsthand that it only takes one son to save drowning sailors, God's only son, Jesus Christ. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Putioli. Putioli. Got to get my Italian going. Putioli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. From Malta to Syracuse was eighty miles. From Syracuse to Requiem was 70 miles. From Requiem to Puteoli, the port of Naples, was 180 miles. And it's interesting that Paul found Christians in the small little Italian city of Puteoli. Just goes to prove how fast the gospel was now spreading across the empire. The ship docked in Puteoli and Paul traveled overland the remaining 125 miles along the famous road, the Apean Way, the, Rome from the, coast to, of the road from the coast to Rome. And it was on that road that a delegation of Roman Christians came out to welcome their distinguished guest, the Apostle Paul. And from there, where the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as a P forum and three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. See, these Romans had not only heard of Paul, but they had received a letter from him. A brilliant theological treatise that Paul had written. We'll study it next. Paul's letters to the Romans. Verse 16. Now when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul was spared the dungeon, and he was put under house arrest. He was allowed visitors and provisions. His only restriction was a 24-hour guard. This meant every six hours, a new soldier replaced the former. There were four shifts per day. And this helps us to understand Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. For there, Paul writes of his internment in Rome. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. Guess what Paul talked about with the guards each time they swapped shifts? He preached the gospel. You know he did. He told them about Jesus. Imagine being chained to the apostle Paul for six hours a day. Trust me, either you got saved or you went crazy. One of the two. You definitely heard the truth. See, Paul here turns an inconvenience into an opportunity. And I love how Paul signs off his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Apparently, many of the emperor's own guard had been led to Christ by Paul. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. And remember, this was always his strategy. He preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so when they had come together, he said to them, "'Men and brethren, though I have done nothing "'against our people or the customs of our fathers, "'yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem "'into the hands of the Romans.'" who when they had examined me wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, we neither receive letters from Judea concerning you nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, that is the Christians, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Now, there were probably letters from the Jewish Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem that falsely accused Paul. But you remember what Paul's just been through shipwreck no doubt those letters had been lost in the shipwreck God made sure of it so that when Paul got to Rome there was no accusation against him God wanted the Jews in Rome to hear the gospel with an open mind thus the shipwreck verse 23 so when they had appointed him a day many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And don't you wish you had the CD? Man, all day long, from morning to evening, Paul opens the scripture and he shows the Jews how the Old Testament had prophesied of Jesus as the Messiah. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, and here Paul quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah had bemoaned the hard-heartedness of the Jewish people, and what was true of the Jews in Isaiah's day were true of them in Paul's day. But this exposure of their stubbornness wasn't what broke up the party here. What the Jews couldn't stomach was his words in verse 28. For therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. And when he had said these words, Gentiles, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. The Jews were upset. Over God's willingness to offer salvation to the Gentiles. To me and you. The Jews in Rome couldn't accept that God's love was big enough for all people. That God's grace is for every race. And it is. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. And received all who came to him. Preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And not only did he confidently preach the gospel, during those two years, Paul wrote four letters. Today we call them the prison epistles Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and his little letter to Philemon. Eventually, Paul was tried before the emperor Nero and he was released. We don't have a transcript of the trial, but you know that Paul shared the gospel. Nero's rejection of Paul's message could have been the turning point in his life. For it was about that time in history when Nero went nuts. The emperor went mad. Nero became vicious and angry. And guess how he vented his frustrations? He started killing the Christians. He persecuted the cause of Christ. He threw believers to the lions. Nero would dip them in wax and burn them as candles to light his lewd parties at night. When fire ravaged the capital city of Rome, Nero blamed the disaster on the Christians. As legend has it, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. During the five years following Paul's release, he continued to preach the gospel and he wrote letters to Titus and to Timothy. It's possible he even traveled to Spain Eventually, Paul was rearrested by Nero, and he was thrown into Rome's maritime dungeon. It was there that he wrote his second and final letter to Timothy. Tradition tells us that in 67 AD, Paul was beheaded for Jesus' sake. Through the centuries, people have criticized Luke for ending the life of Paul so abruptly here. But Luke wasn't writing a life in times of Paul. The theme of Acts is the spread of the gospel. It began on the edge of the empire in a faraway province called Judea. And in less than 30 years, it had traveled all the way to the capital of Rome. Even at the heart of the empire, under the Caesar's own roof, Christianity's chief spokesman had spread the good news of Jesus to Rome's citizens and its officials. You remember, just before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And by Acts 28, the first Christians had fulfilled that mission. But the command of Jesus is renewable. For it's been said Every generation of Christians is responsible for their own generation of heathen. And thus, the question should be asked Are we taking the gospel to our Jerusalem and our Judea and Samaria and to the ends of our earth? Our friends, our neighbors, even the ends of the earth, are we bringing them the gospel? And like the first Christians, we won't get far without the power of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, the book of Acts doesn't end in chapter 28. It's still being written today by you and by me. Father, we thank you.